Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we thank you that you alone have worked salvation, God, and we have, we have added nothing to salvation but our sin. And Lord, we ask now as we turn to your word that we would again behold wondrous, beautiful things. We would behold you in your glory, in your holiness, and in your sovereignty. Now from your word we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you can take your seats. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 99. And if you're not sure where Psalm 99 is, a little fun fact, this is the middle chapter in the Bible. So easy to find, halfway through the scriptures. And as you turn, I want to share about a man named J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is a theologian. He's an old man now, but back in 1972, uh, as he was uh, growing up in the church and as he was uh, in seminary and still involved in the church, he began to observe two great weaknesses amongst the church at large, amongst Christians. And the two weaknesses that he was observing drove him to write a book, a book that would become now today, a Christian classic, millions sold. And the two weaknesses that drove him to write this book, the concern that he saw amongst Christians way back in 1972, it wasn't a new concern then. It's not a new concern now. It's been around for a while. But the first concern was that he observed that Christianity and Christians in the church at large are becoming more and more conformed to, the image, uh, to the, having a mind like the world thinking like the world, how they view difficulty and tragedy, seeing, seeing those things from the perspective of the world, how they think about their own lives, how they even approach God is in a worldly way. And he describes it this way, that man has great thoughts of man and small thoughts of God. This was the first concern that the church at large is being conformed in their mind by the world. The second weakness, the second concern that drove him to write this book was not that just that the world was being conformed in their thinking, or the church being conformed to the world's thinking, but that the church was being confused by skepticism. That since the 17th century when the Enlightenment began, the heart of the Enlightenment was an attack on who God is and his existence. And he has observed that that type of thinking is creeping into the church. And he wrote the book, which we now know as Knowing God. And he writes in the introduction that the first and the foremost thing that people need to know in order to understand themselves and under, understand the world that we live in is to know who God is. Do you know who God is? You understand who he is. Because if we fail to understand and truly know who God is, we will fail to worship him in his splendor and majesty like he deserves. We will crumble under the pains of suffering and storms and adversity when they come if we do not know who God is. We will wrestle with doubt and lack of faith because we don't know who God is, 
We can grip onto God's promises, but if we don't know the God who's made those promises, we will fail to walk with God as we should. And the psalmist in Psalm 99 wants to instruct the people of God. It wants to instruct us this morning and remind us this morning of who God is. The Israelites needed to hear this. They needed to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of this this morning. And namely, the two things the psalmist wants to highlight to us, wants us to know with certainty about who God is, is that he is sovereign and that he is holy. That if we fail to see God as sovereign and holy, in control of every detail, not just of our lives, but the world in which we live in, we are going to struggle in our faith. But if you have faith and know who God is, that he has every detail of your life under his reign and under his control, that he has every detail of the world in history under control, under his reign, under his authority, it is easy to trust him. That it is easy to trust God when we know that he has our little life in his hand when he's got the whole world in his hand. So we are gonna read Psalm 99, and I hope you're there. We are going to behold the holy Lord who reigns this morning. Who is God? This is what we are going to learn. This is what we are going to see, that this would encourage us, this would build us up in our faith, and ultimately that this would move us to worship him as he deserves. So let's read God's word now. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherub. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O oh, Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. This is God's word. Now, it's important for us to note that the book of Psalms, it's divided into five smaller books. And Psalm 99 is found in book four in the Psalms. But it's also important for us to know how book three in the Psalm, Psalms ends. And Psalm 89 is the end of the third book of the Psalm. And that Psalm ends with a cry, with a lament from God's people that there is no heir on the throne. The kingship is vacant and they are calling out to God. 
to remember his covenant promise, that they are weeping the fact that God, as it seems, has not provided a king for them. And book four follows this, and book four's focus is that there is a king. And the king reigns long before the kingship was established, reigns long after the kingship will fade. And Psalm 99 is found even in a smaller subset of Psalms in the book of Psalms called enthronement Psalms. They are special Psalms, special songs that the people of God would sing with the focus on God's sovereign reign, celebrating this and worshiping him in light of this. So we are going to behold the holy Lord who reigns. The psalmist wants to remind us this morning, perhaps you're struggling. Perhaps you're going through suffering. Perhaps you're unsure of a situation you're in. The psalmist wants to remind you of who God is. And we are gonna hear first the proclamation of his reign. Hear the proclamation of his reign. Look at the beginning of Psalm 99, verses one to three. It says this. It says, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. It doesn't say that man reigns. It doesn't say that your circumstances reign. It doesn't say that the Lord and man reigns. It doesn't say that luck reigns. It doesn't say that chance reigns. It says that the Lord reigns. It doesn't say that human rulers reign. It doesn't say that CEOs reign. The Lord alone reigns. Satan doesn't reign. Demons don't reign. The Lord Notice, it doesn't say the Lord has reigned. It doesn't say the Lord will reign. It says the Lord reigns. This is active. This is present. This is happening now. What does he reign over? Well, it doesn't say explicitly, but it implicitly applies that he reigns over everything. Every detail. He reigns over your good days. He reigns over your bad days. He reigns over the sunny days. He reigns over the rainy days. He reigns over the worldly affairs. He reigns over the greatest tragedies and the greatest triumphs. The Lord reigns over all things. And in a very real sense, this text is communicating to us there is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as karma. This is such a prevalent thought in our day that we need to do good things and good things will come our way. And if we do bad things, if we think bad thoughts, bad things will come our way. Karma does not exist. In a very true sense, accidents don't exist either. Accidents do not exist. The Lord in his sovereign reign oversees all things. It's been said, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. There are many verses in the Bible that talk about God's sovereign reign. One, Proverbs 21, we know this one, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of the water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Or we know this one, the heart of man plans his ways, but... It is the Lord who establishes his steps. The Lord is over all things. 
in control of all things. And some of us right now, we're, we're recoiling in our seats a little bit because we're thinking of perhaps really terrible things that have happened to us. Or perhaps at this very moment, you are going through something that's so gut-wrenching and you're like, really, the Lord is in control of that? This terrible thing, the Lord is in control of that? Yes. And I don't know the Lord's purpose in that thing, but the scriptures teach us not just that God is sovereign, but he knows all things. That he has foreknowledge. He has a purpose in those things. Romans 8, 28, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. God has a plan, a purpose. We might not understand it, and that's okay because we're not all-knowing. We don't have foreknowledge, but we can rejoice because the Lord reigns and he has a purpose. He isn't going to waste that tragedy. He isn't going to waste that confusion. Perhaps you're recoiling because you're like, why would the Lord gift this person this way and me this way? Why is this person handsome or pretty and the Lord made me this way if he reigns over all things? Why has the Lord provided this job for this person or this school degree for this person and not me? Why has he given this person smarts and not me this? And I don't know. But the scriptures again call us that the Lord has a good plan for those who are loved and called according to his purpose. And in this we can rejoice. We can rejoice. The Lord reigns. And he goes on describing this proclamation of his reign. He says in verse one at the end, he says, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The psalmist is painting a picture of the throne room of heaven. And he says that God sits enthroned or he is above the cherubim. Are cherubim chubby babies? No. These are terrifying, angelic beings and guards. It is in Genesis 3 that God places the cherubim at the gates of Eden to prevent man from going. And it is the cherubim that are put on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to, to guard God's presence. These are holy and angelic beings. And these are the creatures that God sits enthroned upon. And notice the response of the Lord's reign. Notice the response of seeing what his throne room is like. It says, let the peoples tremble. Let the earth quake. There is a very real sense in which, yes, we should rejoice in God's reign, but there is a humbling, quakeness, and tremblingness, and a reverence that we should have in light of who God is. When we begin to know and see who God really is, we begin to see just how not great we are, just how polluted and sinful we are, just how unlike God we are. Who is like the Lord? And the psalmist, he goes on as he's proclaiming the reign of God, not just that he reigns, not just that he sits enthroned, but verse two, it says, the Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. The psalmist wants to bring to attention that the Lord 
is great in the heavenlies and amongst the people of God, but not just those people, that he is exalted over all the peoples, every person, every nation, and the response that we should have is not just a trembling, not just a reverence, but verse three, it says, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. That word awesome, we lose the oomph of that word. We use that so much, right? Like white cake, birthday cake, it's awesome. Apple pie is awesome. Going down the Yukon striker at Wonderland is awesome. What that word really means is terrifying. There is a trembling of being in the presence of seeing and beholding such a holy and sovereign God over all things. And he is deserving of our praise and we see the first refrain of three. It says, holy is he. God doesn't just reign. God doesn't just deserve our praise, but he deserves our praise in recognizing that he is holy, that he is so set apart, so other, so unlike the creatures that he's made. Do you know him? Do you recognize him? Do you see him as the God who reigns? This is the proclamation of his reign. The psalmist, he begins to move in to us seeing the picture of his reign. He wants to describe, okay, if the Lord is the one who reigns and he is holy and he has so much power, what is his reign like? He wants to show us a picture of what the Lord God reigns like. And you've, I'm sure, heard like I have people that are against the existence of God, the character of God, and one of the things they say is, if God is so all-powerful, would he ever use that power for evil? Would he ever use that power in a malicious or a wrong way? We've used the phrase, you've, you've probably heard it as well, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not so with the Lord. We see a picture of his reign that is so unlike human rulers, human authorities. Verses four and five give us this picture. It says, the king in his might loves justice. The king in his might loves justice. In fact, there's an irony being used here by the psalmist. Because the psalmist doesn't just say the king loves justice. It says the king in his might, he wants to highlight again the power, the authority, the rule that God has over all things. And he wants to highlight that, yes, God is all powerful. Yes, God is almighty. But you know what? God is not like human rulers and authorities. He loves justice. There are so many examples. In fact, as, as I was thinking about the examples that I could share of where human authorities or rulers have failed us, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even pick. On a weekly basis, don't we hear something in the news of someone in some position of authority using their authority for evil, selfishness, wickedness, corruption, where they use their authority to triumph over others, to lord their authority over others. We can think of dictators from history. We can think of rulers and government officials today. We can even think of perhaps, probably, personal examples of bosses 
or CEOs that we have known where they have used their authority over us in wrong ways. Perhaps you think of yourself even. Some of us are in positions of authority at various companies. Perhaps you're even at the church. And there are moments that we have faltered and failed and we've used our authority in a wrong way, in a selfish way, and in a wicked way. That is not how the Lord is. It says the Lord in his might, the king in his might loves justice. It is God's delight to exercise and rule with justice fairly, equitably, that justice isn't a slogan for the Lord. It's not a buzzword for the Lord. He loves it and he goes on and he says this, that he has established equity, that you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. That the Lord doesn't just love justice, He's the one that laid the foundation to true justice. He is the one who has executed justice. He never misuses his power. He never wrongfully reigns, but he exercises it in every instance, every second, rightly, improperly. But we've got to ask, why would a God want and care to establish justice among such sinful people, sinful creatures. We as human beings, we repeatedly demonstrate that we actually don't care about justice as much as we think. We continually show that we are not lovers of justice like the Lord. What makes God want to establish his justice amongst the world, amongst sinful people. Well, the psalmist, he calls the people to exalt the Lord and worship at his footstool, and he says, holy is he. The quality and characteristic, the attribute that moves God to establish justice, the sure hope that we have that God is going to establish justice, he is going to right every single wrong, is his holiness. His holiness is what is going to assure us and give us a sure hope that God will right every wrong that you have faced. God will right every wrong that you've committed. It's been said that the holiness of God is the beauty of all his attributes. That without God's holiness, his wisdom would be inadequate Without God's holiness, his justice would be cruelty. Without God's holiness, his sovereignty would be tyranny. Without his holiness, his mercy would be foolish pity. Without his holiness, he would be an infinite monster. But God is holy. He is free from every drop of evil and pollution. He is completely and utterly pure. That we are getting a glimpse into our Lord. That the Lord doesn't just reign. He is not one that has just established justice in his reign. He is so set apart, so holy. And the call again is to exalt the Lord, our God worship at his footstool. These two words, exalt, means to lift up. 
And to worship is to bow down, to fall before the one that you are worshiping. And specifically, it says, exalt the Lord our worship at his footstool. Perhaps you own a footstool at home and you put your feet on that footstool. While kings, they would have footstools and it would be the lowest place on the throne. It would be where they laid their feet. And we are called to worship at his footstool, to fall before him, to humble ourselves before him. When we begin to see and know who God is, we will approach God in this way. How many of us came in here today in a lowly state of heart? That we were recognizing that we weren't just coming to worship, but we were coming to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who's placed the stars in heaven, the one who knows the hairs on your head, the one who before time began fashioned by his wisdom the foundation of the earth. Do we come with that holy reverence, that trembling heart of worship? Did we come in here tonight or this morning today that way? Do we see the Lord as holy and reigning? This is the picture of his reign. What an encouragement to know that the Lord is a Lord that reigns and a Lord that is just. How great he is, how wonderful he is. And the psalmist, he goes on. He doesn't just want to proclaim the reign of the Lord. He doesn't just want us to see the picture of the reign of the Lord. He wants us to see the presence of his reign. He wants us to behold and see that God, this holy God, this high and exalted God, he is not a king that is far off. He is not distant from us. He is not indifferent to you. But he longs to dwell with his people. Perhaps you've heard of this analogy. Uh, This was an analogy that began a couple of hundred years ago and it, it has gained, gained in, in increasing traction amongst agnostics. And it's called the clockmaker analogy. And the clockmaker analogy describes God as a clockmaker. And the, the clock that he creates is the world. And he goes and he creates this clock. He winds it up. He puts the battery in it. It it's clearly shows that there was someone who designed this clock. Intelligent design clearly is affirmed, but the clockmaker analogy says that God walks away from the watch. He doesn't care anymore. He's indifferent about that watch. This is not what the scriptures teach, that God is not a God who is far off from his people. He is a God that doesn't abandon creation and abandon these sinful creatures of the dust who have rebelled, we see a picture that is, in many ways, jaw-dropping. Surely that would make sense if he would do that, right? Why would such a holy God, a God who reigns, not just, why would he care? Why wouldn't he just rain down fire from heaven and burn us all up? Why wouldn't he just walk away? That is not the picture. Look, See the presence of his reign. Verses six says this. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. 
In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. We see that a description of uh, three men. We see Moses and Aaron and Samuel. At first, it seems like kind of random. Why would the psalmist list these three men? And he's reminding Israel of a time before the kingship was installed. In fact, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, they they kind of serve as bookends to a time when the, the people of Israel were a theocracy. They were under the kingship of the Lord. There was no human king. There was no monarchy. And he wants to, again, remind them that the Lord's always been king of his people. And specifically, he draws that these men, they, they, they were people who, men who called upon his name. Do you see that in verse six? Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. These, these men, these leaders of his people called upon God. And what's even more jaw-dropping is at the end of verse six, it says they called to the Lord and he answered them. This God who reigns, this holy God who reigns, hears the callings of these three men and he answers them? The psalmist is not just highlighting that these men were uh, leaders of the people or mediators or intercessors for the people at that time. These men specifically called upon the Lord at very crucial times. In fact, Moses, we can think of one crucial time, perhaps the psalmist was even thinking of this moment, was in Exodus 32 when the people of Israel fashion themselves a golden calf and they worship this golden calf. And the Lord in his righteousness, in his goodness, wants to burn these people alive and rain down fire on these sinners who have insulted his holiness and insulted his throne. And it says that Moses goes to the Lord and says, Lord, Remember your covenant promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are your people that you have made a covenant to make them a great nation. And it says that the Lord relents, that Moses stood in the gap. It describes that scenario. And then we think of Aaron. Aaron in Numbers 16, when the sons of Korah rebel and God invokes a plague on the people, it says that Aaron is the one who administers healing and stands between the living and the dead. Or Samuel, Samuel was the last prophet, the last one to be before the kingship was established. And it says that he called out to the Lord on behalf of the people and pleaded with the Lord. That Moses, he stood in the gap. Aaron stood between the living and the dead. And Samuel, he cried out to the Lord for these sinful people. That each of these men stood and called upon the Lord 
when the Lord was about to pour out his wrath upon his people. And it says in verse seven, in the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. It's highlighting that these men, specifically Moses and Aaron, were men that heard the voice of God and that they kept his law, his testimonies, and his statutes. When everyone else was not faithful, these men were there and they were faithful. In verse eight, it says, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You You were a forgiving God to them. But an avenger of their wrongdoings, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. That the Lord relents, he forgives, and he avenges their wrongdoing. As we've read uh, this psalm, maybe you've noticed that all of these things are talking about something that's already happened. That if you see back in verse four, it says, you have established equity. You have executed righteousness. Talks about how God, you were a forgiving God to them. An avenger of their wrongdoing, that this psalm is different from the other enthronement psalms. Psalms 93 to 98 celebrate the coming of the king. Psalm 99 is different. It celebrates that the king has come, that it is in what is called the perfect tense. But you and I, we're we're sitting here, we're standing here today, and we know our world feels more unjust than it ever has. It feels more out of control than it ever has. That this tense is really a prophetic perfect. That it's such a sure thing that the Lord is going to come and he is going to execute his reign. He is going to execute his justice and he is going to truly dwell with his people forever. That it's such a sure thing. It's as if it's already happened. This is who our God is. But it's important for us to note that the fulfillment does come. It comes in Jesus Christ. That the God who reigns descended from heaven. The one who has established justice was treated unjustly. The one who heard the cries of Moses and Aaron and Samuel and responded and forgave is the one that truly stood in the gap, is the one who truly stood between the living and the dead, the one who truly cried out and was the true intercessor between God and man, the one who has truly offered forgiveness to his people, the one who has truly avenged sin by his own blood, that to behold and know the Lord is to know Jesus Christ and to see and behold God's holiness in the gospel. We see it ends, verse nine, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. You want to behold and see the sovereign reign of God? You want to behold and see the holiness of God? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. That God's holiness in his reign is on mighty display with Christ hanging on the cross. 
seeing God's character and punishing sin. The one who is holy and unpolluted, the one who is high and lifted up, the one who alone is glorious and majestic, his holiness was desecrated, his throne was spit upon by humanity and their sin, and he is obligated by his holiness to punish sin. And his hatred for sin is seen in what he's done for his son. And his love and heart of redemption is seen in what he's done for his son. That the one who is equal to him in nature, the one who is perfect and glorious, he willed that he would die on a cross, that Jesus Christ would be exposed to the greatest divine wrath rather that sin should live. This is who God is. Do you know him as holy? Do you praise him because he's holy? Perhaps you're here today and you have not repented of your sins and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Look, look to the cross See who God is. See what he has done for you. See how great, see how wonderful he is. For the one who is in here who is struggling and life is hard, there is not a firmer foundation than to see and behold who God is. I can stand on that. There is not a softer pillow which you can lay your head on at night than to see who God is, that he is sovereign and holy. And the psalmist calls one last time, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy, no longer at his footstool, but at his holy mountain. And this is to signify that God's people are coming out together publicly, setting themselves apart to worship the Lord. Do you know who the Lord is? And do you worship him? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are so quick to forget. We are so quick to fail to remember how great you are, how deserving of worship you are. And Lord, I pray specifically for each of us that we would truly know who you are, that you are the God who reigns. You are the God who is holy. You are the God who is just. And you are the God who saves. That the only reason we can truly know you and dwell with you is because of what you have done. For the one who is in here that does not know that, Lord, would you open their eyes to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. For the one who is in here who knows this, who's discouraged, who's confused, Lord, encourage them. Encourage them in who you are, that your promises are sure because of who you are. And Lord, would we worship you? Would we lower ourselves before you? Would we exalt you for the glory of your name? We pray in Jesus' name name.